The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And I'm delighted today to have an award-winning environmental writer, Elizabeth Wright, who is the author of several books, but the one we're going to be focusing on today is titled Bottle Mania, Big Business, Local Springs, and the Battle Over America's Drinking Water. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. You know, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have bottled water. And I have to say that I I picked up your book and I could not put it down. I'm troubled when I go to the supermarket and I see what seems to be just miles of bottled water. And I start multiplying that out by supermarkets in my town, supermarkets in my state, supermarkets in the country and around the world. And, of course, I'm also troubled by bottled water waste, the the plastic bottles that keep piling up. So I was very interested in reading your book. And, you know, a lot of people might feel like, oh, nonfiction, maybe not so interesting. I could not put this book down. And I want to start by reading a passage you've written here. Because water is so important to life and commerce, it's been a cause of conflict and a source of power since before the written word. In fact, the word rival is from the Latin rivalis, meaning one using the same stream as another. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it really is. Well, how did you become interested in this topic? Um, I came to it in a sort of funny way. I wasn't a bottled water drinker, and I've been writing about the environment for so many years. I had been aware that there's this growing discontent with bottled water. But what really got me interested was the work that I did on my penultimate book called Garbage Land on the Secret Trail of Trash. And that book followed different streams of waste after they left my curb, and I wrote about their social and environmental impact. And I had learned while researching that book that water was the fastest-growing segment of the beverage industry and that we threw out or consumed and discarded about 40 billion plastic water bottles a year. And that, that sort of stuck with me. And I was really, by the time I was done with the garbage book, obsessed with this idea of disposability and single-use packaging and, and what it said about us. So that led me to write a whole book about drinking water, bottles and tap. And we take it for granted, really. One of the other things that you wrote towards the beginning of your book was sort of this, you know, water's history. And you say, lack of good water cramped expansion, and the search for new sources drew civilization's map. Water acted as an evolutionary force. And, you know, I almost feel like for a while we had this abundance And we took it for granted, in my lifetime anyway. Mm -hmm. And then we came upon the bottled water era. And I was recently at a meeting in Denver, and we were doing some garden tours. It was community garden tours. And I asked about rain catchment. And the gentleman who supervised the garden said, oh, no, we're not allowed to catch water here, like using rain barrels. That water has to go to the Colorado River. And I had this aha moment of, oh, my gosh, things are serious if a community can't even collect its own rainwater. Well, that law has been in effect for quite a long time. And so that's a prior appropriation state. There are people who have senior water rights. And the Colorado River is 
far over allocated. They've assigned more water rights than there is actual water. They call it paper water versus wet water. And so anyone who prevents water from, you're not allowed to prevent water from flowing back into the stream that leads to the Colorado that is committed to someone else in California or Arizona or, or wherever. It's, it's so interesting, but that took place long before people were thinking about scarcity. Mm-hmm. So you say that you believe that we are coming down a path of water scarcity in the United States overall and that our current water use practices are unsustainable. When did you come to that conclusion? Well, I wouldn't say that overall the U.S. is going to be facing shortages. I think that the places that are dry now are going to be getting even drier. Um, And it's unfortunate that the population is shifting to these areas. I'm talking about the Southwest and California. So the places that are dry are going to get drier, and the places that are wet are probably going to be even wetter. This is what the climate modelers tell us is happening with with climate change. So um, it was researching this book that I learned about how pinched these dry areas are, and I saw how destructive too much rain can be. You think it sounds great to have an abundance of rain, but we're getting bigger, more intense storms, and they're bad for water systems. They overwhelm treatment plants, and they they can break pipes, and they rinse pollutants into waterways. So too little water is a problem, and too much water can be a problem also. You introduce us to a community in Maine where Poland water comes from, and you actually drank from that spring. It was very interesting to learn about the level of security around this water source and also some of the activists that have tried to interfere. Tell me about how that got, was it easy for you to get the interview in the first part? And tell me about how that all came to be. Sure. So I was interested in Poland Spring Water. Poland Spring is owned by Nestle, as you and your listeners probably know. It's the largest food corporation in the world. And they're also the largest water bottler. They, Nestle owns Poland Spring, Arrowhead, Calistoga, Deer Park, Ice Mountain, Zephyr Hills, Ozarka, Perrier, and on and on and on. And Poland Spring seems to have the contract for all these park concessions in New York City, so I would see their bottles everywhere, empty bottles in parks and in streets. And so I started wondering where it came from. And I contacted the company, and it wasn't that difficult. I had connection to someone at the company. My brother works in Maine. My family's from Maine, and I think that might have helped me. And they had sent examples of my other work, so they knew that I was a serious journalist. And Nestle was very open with me and friendly, and there's a lot of security around these areas for two reasons. I think most importantly for the company is protecting the source of the water. They're drawing water, you know, from the earth, and they this water comes from a watershed, and there's a zone of influence around the pumps, and so it's very important to them to protect the supply, to protect the source. And the other reason, slightly less important, is security, and I tell a little bit in the book about a situation in Michigan where people from a group called the Earth Liberation Front had placed pipe bombs in pump houses owned by Nestle, and they were trying to disrupt the pumping of what they thought should not be commodified, should not be put in a bottle and and sold. So when I started reporting my book, there had been this incident with a pipe bomb, but there hadn't been a whole lot of activism in Maine, and maybe that's why the company was more open to me. And I'm not sure the company is so open nowadays to journalists because things really have blown up quite a bit since then. Yeah, and bottled water sales 
really have taken a plunge because of the concern about drying out our aquifers or draining our aquifers to to privatize what should be a public right or a common good. Well, I think that the main reason that bottled water sales have declined in the last year is the declining economy. I think that's the first reason. Mm. That people are rethinking what they spend their extra pennies or dollars on. And secondarily, but no less important, is, yes, the pushback from environmental groups and all this great advocacy work that groups have done, mostly around the issue of the carbon footprint or the food miles behind the water. Right. Speaking of food miles, I'm always shocked when I'm in an airport and I see bottled water from Fiji. And you talk about Fiji water and and their their greenwashing campaign. What do you know about Fiji water? I know that the water is pumped from an aquifer underneath a rainforest. It's artesian. The aquifer is under pressure, and the water, when you tap into it, springs up into pipes that are in their factory. Uh, They put it into those little those square plastic bottles loaded onto ships and send it off to the West Coast, and then the water goes onto trucks and trains and is delivered throughout the country. Fiji water has been kind of the poster child for the the bad bottled water because it comes so far. If you live in New York, it's 8,000 miles to get that water to you. And so the company has taken this criticism quite seriously, and they claim to be carbon neutral now. They buy carbon offsets to what they say they, that mitigates their impact. What else are they doing? They're putting money into recycling systems, promoting recycling, and even um, bottle bills, I think, container deposit laws they're supporting, which is unusual for a beverage company. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> I, I think they might be the only one that I'm aware of. I think that Nestle has said that they would support bottle bills if they covered a wider range of containers, not just beverage bottles. Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. I know Columbia, Missouri, which is where this show is based, was the only community in the United States that had its own bottle bill, bottle ordinance, and we voted on it three times until it was finally defeated. And we know what we've seen as a result of that is the recycling has absolutely declined. I mean, Mm. bottle bills work. And I thought it was interesting because you spoke about how a lot of the major bottlers do indeed lobby against bottle bills, and I couldn't quite understand that. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I'll try to. It's so confusing to me, but it, there is a cost to the company. Besides, they have to you know, do little things like change their labels and to announce on them that you can get your nickel or your dime back. But I explained this a little bit better in Garbage Land because it's always confusing. When a consumer buys a beverage in a bottle bill state or city, you pay a deposit that you'll get back when you bring the bottle back. Right. So the store has your nickel, and then they give it back. But the store and the distributor have handling fees, and I think it costs either the handler or the person who fills the bottle one or two pennies per bottle. So there is a cost to the bottler, and there is a cost to supermarkets. They always lobby against these also because sometimes they, they say they have to hire extra people to collect the bottles or wash them, and they have to devote extra space, scarce space, to storing them. So they've got, those are their general arguments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yet it seems to make so much sense to just have a, a national recycling. I know in New York, uh, the last time I was there, I noticed that there were almost banks 
of places where a person could return cans and bottles. Does that include bottled water in New York? It recently expanded. I think it went into effect at the beginning of this year. At first, it covered only carbonated beverages, soda and beer, and every few years, NYPIRG and other groups would lobby, the Sierra Club would, would lobby to expand it to cover beverages that didn't even exist when the first bottle bill was passed, and that's bottled water and they call them new age drinks, iced teas, sports drinks, things like that. Right. So last year, they finally got to expand it to bottled water, not the other drinks. It doesn't cover drinks with sugar in them for some strange reason, but now water, the water bottles have a deposit on them also. So how did we get from just assuming that we would drink our water from the tap to this expansive or explosive market for bottled water? What transpired? What transpired was hundreds of millions of dollars spent on advertising that suggested sometimes subliminally and sometimes overtly that bottled water was better for us than tap water. The ads played on some weaknesses in tap water systems. There had been a couple of very well-publicized outbreak, disease outbreaks, one in Milwaukee and one in Walkerton, Ontario. But the ads were aspirational, and they used models and celebrities and sports figures, and they implied that if we drank their product, we would be more like these these people. And very cleverly, they told us that we needed to drink eight eight eight-ounce glasses of water a day to be smarter and more beautiful and, and sexier. And if you're going to drink that much water, then portability becomes very, very important. So it was this combination of the wellness trend, people doing yoga, being outside, exercising more, all great things, but they really exploited that awareness or that, those desires with their, their advertisements that water would, would make us feel better on the inside and the outside. It's amazing how gullible we are, really. Yeah, but you have to remember also that there was no one pushing back. There was hardly any critique of bottled water until quite recently, and there was no competition from tap water because your public utility or even your privately owned utility doesn't have millions of dollars in their budgets to spend on advertisements telling you to drink their their water. I was going to say product, but it wasn't considered a product. Right, right. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Elizabeth Roy. She's an award-winning environmental writer and the author of several books. Today we're talking about her book titled Bottle Mania, Big Business, Local Springs, and the Battle Over America's Drinking Water. I think it's interesting that the Financial Times has likened your book your discussion about water to the wonderful book by Eric Schlosser, Fast Food Nation, and his approach to fast food. I think that's a remarkable compliment. It's really true. I mean, it's a, it's, if you're looking for a book on bottled water, I have to say I, I literally could not put this book down. You write in an interesting way, and it's, uh, it's really almost like this mystery that unfolds. You know, you describe, we were talking about bottled water and the marketing behind it and how it's been sold on being more pure, cleaner than tap water. Is that really true? Well, it's it's hard to answer that. By and large, bottle and tap are the same, but water is a really local issue, and that's one of the surprising things, or I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but my eyes were open to this researching the book because... I wanted to know why people bought up this advertising, why they believed it, and I realized that I needed to understand what was right or wrong with tap water. 
to understand bottled water's popularity, and I learned that that water is a really local issue. You and I drink different tap water, and we might even be drinking water that's different in December than it is in June or July. Mm -hmm. So most of the public water systems in this country are fine to drink from. They meet or exceed federal safe drinking water standards. There are some areas that don't do as well cleaning up their water. You hear a lot about low levels of contaminants in, in rivers and failures of the Clean Water Act, but we have really great technology in this country and um, utilities that are doing their job, that have the funding to do their jobs and the expertise, can take almost all of this stuff out of our water. So in most places, tap water is fine to drink. It still leaves 20 or 23 million people a year being served subpar water, and those people do need to do something else with their tap water. I recommend filtering it rather than going out and buying bottled water. And then and bottled water varies also, and I go into that a bit in the book, that differences between spring water, mineral water, purified municipal water, about 40% of the bottled water brands out there start as municipal water from big city pipes in big cities um, like Fresno or Atlanta or Detroit or New York City, and then that water undergoes further filtering and purification before it's put into bottles. So there's a, a wide spectrum out there. It's not just a black and white issue, bottled versus tap. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, where you were talking about how bottled water is tested. And if I read what you wrote correctly, I understood you to say that bottled water is tested for purity before it goes into the bottle. So once it's in the bottle then, the compounds that can leach out of plastic can get into the water, but that's not the water that's tested. Correct. And the longer the water sits in the bottle, scientists have found that the more, the higher the levels of contaminants in the water. But You know, the FDA approves these bottles. They say that the levels that leach, they stop short of saying that chemicals don't leach into the water, and they say that they've all been approved for food products. (laughs) But the, as I say in the book, all the information that they're using has been supplied by the plastics manufacturers themselves. I mean, this is a tremendous point. This is a really important point, the relationships between lobbying industries and the regulations that the FDA has. And, you know, as a dietitian, I've been looking at plastics for a long time. And, in fact, one of, the, one of the leading researchers is located at the University of Missouri, Fred Von Saal, and I interviewed him also about these you know, endocrine disruptors that leach out of plastics. Mm-hmm. And the fact that water is tested before it goes into the bottle, and then you think, okay, what happens to that bottle? could be sitting on the shelf in a temperature-controlled store. But let's face it, you know, many times we throw a bottle in the car, the car might get up to 90, 100 degrees on a hot summer day, and maybe it'll cool down later. We'll take a drink out of it, or we might have it in our, on our bicycle, and we'll be riding around with it or in our backpacks. You know, I don't know what the time relationship is for those compounds to leach into the water, but I'm very concerned. Yeah, I think we know that chemicals can migrate into food or water. We don't know what they're doing to us. I, I guess... The precautionary principle would have you avoid drinking this water or the food or whatever if you have a choice, and I think we have, in most cases, a perfectly good choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's so much, well, I shouldn't say so much conflicting evidence. Does Dr. Ramsal drink from, from water in plastic bottles? No. Okay. <laughs> no. He, In fact, he'll tell you that he does not 
put his food in plastic. Yeah. I think sometimes, I think he mentioned that if he had something to freeze, mm-hmm. he would freeze in a plastic container, but not to use it on a regular basis the way so many of us do. Yeah. Well, I still use my, I have Nalgene bottles that don't have BPA in them. I don't use them every day. I, I more often use my metal bottles. Right. Yeah, and that's typically what I recommend as well, is using the metal bottles or even glass. You know, people mm-hmm. are afraid of glass breaking, but uh, I've never broken one of my glass bottles. Mm-hmm. You're a good steward. I am. Yeah, I'm trying to be. That's why I have you on the show today, because I, I think you have great wisdom through your research in this book. You know, we talk about, okay, so we've got these choices, right? We've got the bottled water choice, and we've got the tap water choice. What is happening to our municipal water supplies? It depends where you live. <laughs> right. Okay. Let's take, Over, let's take the wor- some of the worst-case scenarios. Okay. I, I can say overall that our infrastructure is failing. Engineers rate our system every couple of years, the pipes, and I think most cities get a D or a D-. minus. There's a story recently in the Times about our crumbling infrastructure. We have more than 300,000 water main breaks a year in this country, and every time a water main breaks, a boil water alert goes out, and most people hear boil water and they buy water in in plastic instead. But, yeah, so the worst places, I think, well, agriculture is the largest polluter of fresh water in this country. Places, small towns in the Midwest might not have the resources to be protecting their watersheds and and to be maintaining their infrastructure or um, don't have the money to take out everything that you might want taken out of the water. Um, The Colorado River has perchlorate in it. It's an ingredient in rocket fuel, and the EPA is so far not regulating rocket fuel in water. So people who drink from that system have to take extra steps to remove the perchlorate. All across the country, uh, leaking underground storage tanks of MTBE, which is a gasoline additive, have gotten into water. So you've got industrial contaminants, you've got agricultural contaminants, and it all depends on how good a job your utility is doing. We also have to mention people who drink from private wells. They're on their own. (laughs) Anyone who drinks from a well needs to test that every year for all kinds of contaminants, not just bacteria and and viruses, but also agricultural and industrial pollutants. Mm -hmm. We're seeing a lot of problems with atrazine, of course, in the Midwest. That's been in the news lately. Um, That's a big one. Do bottled water companies test for those agricultural chemicals and even pharmaceutical compounds that may be in the water? They're required to test for atrazine. Um, Bottled water is regulated by the FDA, and tap water is regulated by the EPA, and Bottled water bottlers are required to test for this. Uh, they can have the same number and level of contaminants in bottled water that the EPA allows in tap. So they're both testing for atrazine. Neither regulatory body is required to look for pharmaceuticals. That's a, like, an emerging contaminant. It's something they're increasingly concerned about, and the EPA is spending money to study what's out there and what it might be doing to aquatic creatures and to us. What do you think we should do? <laughs> I think we should find out exactly what's going on with our own water. We should be aware of what's going on upstream, what sort of development is taking place, what kind of industry is discharging into the into the river or onto the earth that might be running through the earth and into our water sources. Know about agriculture. 
read your consumer confidence report. That's your annual report from your utility. If you're on a well, test test the well through a certified lab. And then take an extra step and test your water. This is for people on municipal supplies. Do what I did. And, and then do further testing at your tap because the utility is responsible for the, your water quality only up to the service lines of your house. If you have very old pipes, if you have soldering, it could be lead or oh, copper in your fine. house. Sure. Right. So you need to test your water at the source also. And then if there are contaminants of concern, you need to do some research and find out what kind of filter you can install to protect yourself. Also, talk to your doctor. Consider your personal health situation because people who are pregnant or nursing or in frail health or immunocompromised, they might not be able to drink water that that other people can drink. So one of the things that you propose in your afterword of the book is that you propose a national fountain campaign What do you mean by that? I think that once we find out what's in our water and we filter it if we need to and we get our beautiful reusable bottles that we're happy to carry around with us that are easy to clean ourselves, then we need more places to fill them when we're out and about. We can all bring a bottle with us when we leave home, but, you know, the day goes on and it's not so easy always to find a place to fill your water bottle. So I think we need to in more public drinking water fountains and maintain them and remind people through massive public education efforts that the water is healthy, it's good for us, it's affordable, it's ours, it's a public resource, and drink up. (laughs) I think that's a great charge. Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for your time today. If you're wondering who we've been speaking with, it's Elizabeth Wright. She's the author of Bottle Mania. Big Business, Local Springs, and the Battle Over America's Drinking Water. Elizabeth, I want to thank you for your time today, and I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind our listeners, too, that Food Sleuth Radio is brought to you in beautiful downtown Columbia at KOPN Studios. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me on.